0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I spoke with author and investigative journalist Louise Milligan. Louise joined me to talk about her latest book, Witness An Investigation into the Brutal Cost of Seeking Justice. Louise goes into great depth around the experience that witnesses and complainants have when they're cross examined in criminal proceedings particularly in cases relating to child sexual abuse and sexual assault. If the subjects discussed in this conversation bring up any issues for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. Then I spoke with Professor Mary Louise McLaws, epidemiologist at UNSW and member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. Mary-Louise talks about Victoria's five-day lockdown, the variants of concern that have now moved into the community at low levels, Australia's hotel quarantine issues and airborne transmission. We also discuss what needs to happen for Australia to achieve herd immunity against COVID-19 through vaccination. Then, finally, Hong Kong-based lawyer and author Anthony Dapperin returns to discuss the ongoing political crackdowns in Hong Kong that have resulted from the introduction of far-reaching national security laws in 2020 and you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me Amy Mullins and it's my great pleasure and delight to welcome onto this program Louise Milligan who is an investigative reporter for ABC TV's Four Corners program she's also the best-selling author of Cardinal which won the Walkley Book Award and also she's been the recipient of the 2019 Press Freedom Medal. She's covered a huge number of issues in her life as an investigative journalist and no doubt you would be familiar with Louise's work if you are a viewer of ABC's programs, including the 7.30 Report, which Louise worked on prior. So we're going to be, for the purposes of this conversation, talking about Louise's new book that was released at the end of last year, and it's called Witness, an Investigation into the Brutal Cost of Seeking Justice. And it's really a fascinating read and something um, that I'm sure people will find quite gripping because Louise tells this story very much from a, an insightful first person account and she's drawing on a great depth and range of knowledge. So I welcome Louise now. Thank you so much for joining us and it's really wonderful to be speaking with you. It's great to, to be with you too, Amy. Thanks for having me. Well, I've got to say, uh, as someone who actively consumes media, it's pretty impossible to have not known your work, Louise, and um, I know that's the case for many other people. And, of course, being an investigative journalist and having that really special role in the field of journalism is something that not every or many journalists would ever get the opportunity to do. And to have that real privilege of being let into the dark corners of of people's lives and exposing truths, first of all, I wanted to set the scene in terms of your career and your experiences and get a sense of how you ended up in investigative journalism and what your experience has been in this particular field of journalism.
1: Well, I started out as a journalist after doing a law degree uh, at Monash, the uh, law arts, I did honours in politics, um, I was sort of always interested in journalism or law as potential career paths and realised, you know, about halfway through my law degree that I didn't really see myself, you know, being a solicitor working, you know, on trust accounts and so on. And I decided to become a journalist, went to RMIT, did a graduate diploma in journalism. And I started my career at the Australian newspaper, which is quite a different paper to what it is now. And I just loved it from the start. And I remember getting that sort of like that digging bug that you get. It's like, you know, some people describe it as story lust where you can't stop, you know, you work all hours of the day because you want to kind of crack the story. I remember the first time it ever happened, it was um, in relation to hilariously the Peter Reith telecard affair so this was so long ago that people were still using telecards in phone boxes <laughs> um and uh, I remember like finding like a key source in 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 that scandal so this was in 2000 I, I think and I remember being so excited I was out with my friends at um Cherry Bar which I think is now closed but back in those days like before insurance companies brought in you know rules about people sitting in dangerous places we were all sitting on a window ledge that was quite high up and as I say I was so excited that I actually fell out of the window (laughs) but I because of my law degree you know which I sort of finished under sufferance um but I'd always been interested in the policy issues around law and in the um you know, the sort of issues around justice and also in people's stories, I was very keen on covering courts and I lobbied pretty vigorously um, to, to to cover courts when I moved up to Sydney with the paper. I had been doing education and I got sick of speaking to teachers because I don't really like, that they tend to tell you what to do, you know, and I don't really like being told what to do. And um, anyway... I started doing courts and I covered some of the biggest murder trials of the day and, like, big cases like the Rene Rifkin mm. insider trading case and, I, you know, the um, Janelle Patton murder inquest on Norfolk Island and so on. And um, I was just hooked and I was fascinated and also moved by what I saw and the trauma that I was sort of bearing witness to every day in those courts, and we didn't cover many sexual offences at the time because they don't t- tend to be as sort of big stories unless they're about someone famous. You know, there the, the, are a dime a dozen going through these depressing kind of. Um, courtrooms um and but we did cover some and and I there are details from a big child sex case that I covered at the time that I still have flashbacks to that I don't think I'll ever scrape those awful memories of what those children suffered from my brain and that sort of became an interest and after I was at the Australian, I was I was sort of poached by Channel Seven um, to go and do state politics um, for them, and um, I did that for a few years. And then I came up, I came back to Melbourne because I was having my second child, and I didn't want to, you know, I, there was already someone else doing politics, and I didn't want to have to cover just the story of the day. And so I sort of created this job for myself as an investigative journalist covering freedom of information. So basically I would dig through reports and find things that I should sort of seek out from the government. And that led to breaking some big stories um, for Seven. I was sort of only working a few days, like three days a week because I had two small children. But I loved it. I loved the independence of it. And through that I got a job at 7.30. And, um, you know, I've, I've never sort of looked back since then I absolutely love being an investigative journalist because I like, as I say, the independence and the autonomy of it, but I also like building these sort of long-term relationships with sources, with people who have experienced injustice of one form or another, and building on the sort of skills, you know, as a law graduate and as someone who covered courts, I've always been interested in that part of journalism. And that's what sort of like led me to the Child Abuse Royal Commission, which I started covering in about 2015. And that led me to George Pell, who Mm. was, you know, the big story of that commission. And along the way, I began investigating him. And that's all, you know, water under the bridge now, because of course, he was tried and convicted and... The conviction remained on appeal, but then, of course, the High Court ultimately acquitted him. I was a a witness in his case because I was what was known as the witness of first complaint, which is the first person in the world that one of the complainants who said he abused him as a child had told about their experience. And so the defence used that as a way of trying to pick apart the cases of some of the other complainants um, because I was the only journalist who had to actually track down these men. And therein (laughs) lies the whole sort of basis for witness, which was one of the most excoriating experiences of my entire life, being cross-examined for a day by Cardinal Pell's Defence counsel Robert Richter QC.
0: Indeed, and uh, it is pretty confronting reading as well, and very extensive and lengthy. So I can't even imagine the personal experience of sitting up there and um, you know doing that, and being so present and having to actively think the whole time under the barrage of questions that were put to you. And we will get into the detail of that, but you did just mention before about the fact that you were the first person that one of these complainants told in terms of the alleged abuse that they had suffered. And so, you know, you're clearly in a position of trust and also seemingly in a, a really important position of trust because people spoke to you about these Experiences in their lives that were really dark and had followed them around for their childhood and into their adulthood, and uh, many of these people hadn't actually revealed these alleged instances of abuse to many people, if not anyone at all. Which, as you say in this book, is not uncommon to you know have this very long delay of reporting an alleged sexual abuse in childhood. So, from that perspective of being in a very special position of trust, I mean, it probably is not a coincidence that people chose to speak with you, Louise, because they felt that they could trust you as a journalist. How did you navigate these kind of relationships when you're dealing with people who are in a very vulnerable situation? I think it's always being mindful of the fact that they are in a vulnerable situation
1: and that it's very difficult for them to speak about their experiences and allowing them to speak in their own time and in a way that they feel comfortable. I am a big advocate of trauma informed journalism. So, recognizing the trauma that people have gone through and giving them power in that conversation and treating them with sensitivity and above all kindness and being genuine and demonstrating that you are genuine and assuring them that you will protect them and you won't betray them. That doesn't mean that you don't subject what they say to journalistic rigour and scrutiny and fact-check everything within an inch of its life, because these are very serious allegations. And let's move outside Pell, but in the broad, these are people who are making serious allegations about someone that, you know, if they go into the public domain, will destroy that person's life. So you have to take it very, very seriously, and you have to subject it to really rigorous scrutiny. But that doesn't mean being dispassionate. You know, I think it's about having that balance of treating them like a human being and also recognizing that false complaints are extremely rare. Research that was tendered to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse showed that they are largely made up of people who are floridly mentally ill and people who are involved in family court disputes so children who have one parent sort of pitting them against the other the other thing is for them to to decide to come forward to the media and to go through the criminal justice system is such an enormous step it is such a terrible thing to go through it takes years um, the criminal justice system that is that, you know, you would have to be a special sort of mentally ill to continue with that if it wasn't true. And the other thing I would say about it is that I have, because I have spoken to hundreds of complainants of child sexual abuse and adult sexual assault, I have spoken to one or two who have subsequently turned out to be making a false complaint. Those people were floridly mentally ill and it was very apparent, very early on in my rigorous fact-checking process that things didn't stack up. There were holes, very large holes in the story very early on so I just want people to know that because I do think that Defence Council in particular and certain aspects of the media who are protecting powerful accused predators make out like there are all of these people running around making false complaints when, in fact, that's not true. But despite the fact that false complaints are incredibly rare, all of the international research shows the number of complaints that end up in convictions is much lower than other similar types of crimes, for example, assault or robbery or murder. <laughs> Although, you know, in that in, in a murder case, the complainant is obvious, there is no complainant, you know, if the person is dead. But these crimes are underreported to police because people understand And appreciate how difficult it is to go through this process and they experience a lot of shame and they experience a lot of fear so they're underreported to police and then they are often dropped early in the process and they are often they often result in hung juries and they often result in acquittals. Now that doesn't mean that the people who have committed these crimes, are innocent.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's, I guess, what makes things so traumatising As well, is the fact that in many cases, there isn't a real sense of closure, or at least a real sense that you, you know, achieved what you imagine would be achieved, potentially. And you do give examples in the book of um, individuals who have experienced these situations where you're almost just left hanging, really, in terms of what the legal process gave you in the end.
1: Mm. And I would say that um, particularly when it comes to complainants of historical or, you know, other child sexual offences, that the most common reason that I've experienced for them coming forward is they want to protect other children. They're concerned that this person is in the community, Mm. you know, so it's not about a sense of vengeance generally it is about a sense of closure and, and a sense of someone, they, they, they generally want someone to actually admit to it. But, of course, these guys never do or very rarely do unless, you know, the odds are so overwhelmingly stacked against them and generally they're not well-resourced defendants who have, you know, a bucket of money to keep appealing and appealing if things don't go their way.
0: Mm. I was reminded of some statistics that you shared in the book from an analysis by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald newspapers, which was looking at sexual assault statistics and was published in September 2019, and I'm quoting here from the book, which found that of the 52,396 sexual assaults reported to New South Wales police between 2009 and 2018, Charges were only laid in 12,894 cases, and of those cases, 7,629 went to court. And of those cases, 2,308 were dropped to trial, and 1,494 were found not guilty. The remaining 3,827, or 50% of the total that went to court, were found guilty. And then, as you say, that's just 7% of the cases that originally were reported to police. I mean, when you do think about it in those terms and you look at how it steps across the the system from reporting all the way through to court, you know, it is pretty shocking. It's,
1: it, I mean, if those figures aren't an example of why the system is fundamentally broken, I don't know, you know, what are. The Royal Commission... When I was um, writing my first book, Cardinal, I remember speaking to one of the senior lawyers at the Royal Commission and he said to me, we kind of lead people down the garden path here because they have this really good experience, you know, Mm. and it's not like that in the criminal justice system. And he felt quite guilty about that because they were respected and loved in a way. In that environment, I mean, I was really struck by it the first time I went to Ballarat to listen to the hearings in the Royal Commission. And there was just this sense of a community and, you know, an institution wrapping its arms around people who had been so afraid to come forward and who, you know, some of whom had never told anyone. Um, about their experience before they got up there and, you know, gave their evidence and were still doing it under a pseudonym because for some reason the victims of these crimes get tarnished by the crimes and they are subjected to disbelief and gaslighting. Mm. I remember that day so well because I had just come back from, the executions of Myron Sukumaran and Andrew Chan in Indonesia, the Bali Nine guys, I was very traumatised by that experience covering that for many months. And I, yeah, I mean, I had had to sort of actually sort of seek counselling because it was so upsetting. And I remember coming back and my boss saying to me, how would you feel about going and, you know, (laughs) covering the child abuse Royal Commission? And uh, because I had grown up Catholic and had left the church but had always had an abiding interest in these issues, um, and I said, yeah. And so I went along and, you know, people kind of said to me at the time, like, oh, my God, why are you throwing yourself into another, you know, pile of secondary trauma? But that experience of seeing how these people were, finding their voices and feeling accepted and loved, people who were really broken, it was one of the most moving things I've ever experienced. The contrast between that and the criminal justice system could not be more profound.
0: Yeah, it is stark when you lay it out like that you're obviously in a really special position to get to witness those hearings and to then be able to make clear comparisons as an observer but also as someone who was on the witness stand yourself. Triple R
2: on FM Digital Online via the app.
0: This segues perfectly into some of the key issues around the criminal justice system and how complainants have been treated and are treated, particularly under cross-examination. And you go into great depth about this and you look through court transcripts and, in some cases, court recordings where that's available. And particularly what was interesting in the reports that you mention was that under cross-examination, it was a feeling of re traumatization and that not only were these complainants having to relive their trauma and recounted in excruciating detail over and over again and being subjected to obviously very careful scrutiny in terms of trying to find inconsistencies in their testimony, but also I remember when I was reading this book that they would often say that there was this feeling like you were being disbelieved again, that when the alleged crime first happened, they would feel shame and feel like no one's going to believe me. And often, you know, some people would treat their, their recounting of what has happened to them in that way. And so then subjecting them under this very, at times, extremely harsh cross-examination felt like they were being accused of lying and not just the actual wording of it, but the tone and the actions and the body language and the court environment, it seems to add a lot of trauma to the situation. So I'd love to get a sense from you about the cross-examination process, which you do go through in great detail with many examples in this book, and to share with us what is it about this cross-examination process, particularly the main actors, the judge, the barrister and, of course, the complainant? And what is it that makes this so re-traumatising?
1: Well, speaking to both, uh, I'll, I'll call them victims because these are people who, you know, they have uh, convictions in their cases. Speaking to them and also to psychologists who routinely see these people, if you think about it, it's <laughs> the the tone of this sort of stern Disbelieving, often sarcastic barrister, defense counsel is kind of what their abuser led them to believe would always kind of happen. And, and in lots of cases, the defense counsel actually reminds them of their abuser. They feel like they're being abused again because they were threatened, they were told they wouldn't be believed. You know, they were sort of isolated from their community, they're up there alone and all of the sort of fears that they had about coming forward are being played out and that's happening at the same time that they have to relive the worst thing typically that has ever happened to them in their lives that they haven't really spoken about very often in their lives, like, you know, often They might have told a friend here or there, but they haven't gone into the detail. They'll have told the police, but the police are actually pretty good now at trauma-informed policing when it comes to victims of sexual crimes. They've come a really long way. The bar has not come a long way. At all. (laughs) So barristers will routinely tell you, oh, in the bad old days they used to beat up the witnesses and it was terrible and all that sort of thing. But we've 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 moved on from that. Juries don't like it and all that sort of thing. Well, why is it that victims are routinely telling the Royal Commission, Law Reform Commissions, the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry, psychologists, friends, journalists, me, you know, that. It is still happening. And why is it that the transcripts show that it's still happening? And, you know, the audio, as, as as you mentioned, I mean, I've got the audio of an entire cross-examination of a 15-year-old that's in the book shows that it's still happening. They are speaking to people in a way that no one else speaks to anyone in any other forum in society. I mean, the only other example that I can think of where you are disparaged in this way or humiliated is parliament. But there's a sense of, you know, it being a bit sort of jovial in that in that kind of forum. Yeah. And also when, when someone's being grilled in parliament, it's not about them being raped as a child, you know? Mm. It's unbelievable that, that Defence Council continue to get away with it. And there are, as I talk about in the book, legislative protections theoretically in place in section 41 of the Evidence Act, which um, prohibits improper questioning. Now, that improper questioning goes to tone as well as substance, you know, and I think it's like harassing and belittling type of tone. Well, I'm sorry, but <laughs> when I had my own cross examination, The tone was harassing and belittling the entire day. It never stopped being that. And it's true that the magistrate did intervene on a number of occasions and the Crown Prosecutor also intervened occasionally and did invoke Section 41 of the Evidence Act. But, I mean, really, if they were sort of really pulling him up on his tone, you know, the interventions never would have stopped and I think that that's also part of the problem that that crown prosecutors and judicial officers get worn down by defence counsel who just are relentless. And you know, I spoke to members of the legal profession who said, and and this has this has been raised in forums like the Royal Commission and law reform commissions, etc., that um, judicial officers concerned about appeal points being raised, that they might have an apprehended bias against the accused. That is what happened in the Pell committal proceeding, despite the fact that I would say that the magistrate acted with absolute integrity and fairness from everything that I saw. So it's difficult. And Crown prosecutors Some of them like to play a low-profile type of game where they kind of like give the defence enough rope and let them hang themselves. Um, And so they want the jury to see the complainant or the witness being bullied and to feel sorry for them. Mm. So I spoke to one victim who told me that, you know, she was told by the Crown Prosecutor that basically he let the defense counsel go because seeing her distressed and she was so distressed that she was having nosebleeds was actually valuable to his case as a prosecutor and prosecutors have also told me that that you know there's nothing worse than a wooden victim so sometimes you just let the defense counsel go so These poor people who are reliving this awful trauma who have no legal defence of their own are like lambs to the slaughter in this process. And that's why one of the key reforms that I advocate for in Witness is people, complainants of sexual crimes, having a lawyer in the court, someone who can explain the process to them because so many of them have no idea and the prosecutor is not acting for them and they don't understand that I mean I had one young woman I spoke to who was you know she was a really great young woman who she had secured a a conviction in her case but had been really been through the ringer with the defense counsel a, a man who's quite notorious for, you know, going hard on witnesses and is quite proud of the fact. And um, she was saying to me, oh, my lawyer, talking about the prosecutor. So no one had actually explained to her or it hadn't become clear enough to her that that the prosecution is not acting for you. They are trying to prove a crime beyond reasonable doubt. They're acting for the state. And different prosecutors have different versions of what that means. Some of the prosecutors that I spoke to, I will say most often the women, see it as they have more of a role to make sure that their witness is properly prepared, that they don't just come in five minutes beforehand and you know give them a ticker box, sort of this is what you have to do, that they, they go through everything with them. But a lot of them don't do that and a lot of the time it's because they don't have the time or resources the the county court in victoria district court in new south wales it, it can be a bit of a sausage factory you know mm. and a lot of prosecutors you know privately sort of expressed their frustration with me about that you know so it's not it's not about unfairly blaming them and that's why i think that taking that out of their hands would actually be quite beneficial and, and giving the complainant a lawyer who isn't at the bar table because the complainant isn't a party to the proceedings, it's the state against the accused in a criminal matter, but having them in court to make sure that Section 41 of the Evidence Act isn't breached, that their human rights aren't breached under the Charter of Human Rights that Victoria has and to prepare them in the way that I was prepared. I mean, I was um, being a well-known employee of the ABC in a high-profile case. I mean, really, probably the most high-profile case of the decade, let's face it. I was given so much support from the corporation and also from my publisher uh, at the time, but also I was given the advice of one of Australia's best QCs, um, Jack Rush, which was enormously helpful. You know, he wasn't coaching me because you're not allowed to coach a witness, but he was explaining the process to me and explaining really basic things like, you know, if he is demanding a yes or no answer from you and you truly believe that the question is not best answered by a yes or a no, you can turn to the judicial officer and say, I'm terribly sorry, Your Honour, but I cannot answer this with a yes or a no. If, you know, Defence counsel would like to rephrase the question, I can answer it more fully and more truthfully, you know. I mean, things like that. I mean, as if some complainant who's had no legal advice who is often broken, who, you know, life has often gone off the rails for them. Often they turn to substance abuse, addiction. Some of them end up in jail, especially if they were uh, abused as a child. They, they go on a trajectory from an early age because a fundamental part of their psyche has been broken by this. So then they find themselves in these courts as perfect fodder for defence counsel with no one there to look out for them, you know, the, the, the prosecution is there, the police are there, but really there's not really much that they will do or can do a lot of the time and they're just at sea. And I spoke to psychologists who said it takes years of therapy to get people to the place that they can report and that they can go through this. And it takes years of therapy for them to recover. And many of them are suicidal after this process. I personally, through my journalism, have got to know people whose family members have suicided during this process. It can't continue, you know. It really, really can't. We cannot ask people... To summon the mountain of courage that it takes to do this and then treat them with such
0: disdain. Yeah, absolutely. And there are quite a few chapters in this book talking about and recounting conversations that you've had with barristers in particular, I'm thinking of mostly men. Of course, there are some women, but as you highlight, the fact is that even in Victoria, which is doing slightly better than New South Wales, for example, there are still so few women who are silks and barristers as well. So these are self-employed legal professionals and there are, you know, a number of barriers that women face to being a barrister, and you know, obviously one needs to receive briefings in order to get these jobs. So, you know, networking is a really important part and fitting into the culture presumably. Is another part, and you highlight the types of people that are barristers, and you know the demographics of the people as barristers, and that so many of them are more mature, aged white males, and that that does have an effect on culture, and because that's the predominant group of people who are within this profession. So, I'd love to get a sense from you in terms of the barristers that you spoke with. What was the kind of range? of barristers in terms of their response to your questions about, well, don't you feel like maybe you're not being fair on these people? Don't you think maybe there's a different way, a different approach that you could take to get the same outcome?
1: I think typically, as I mentioned before, they would all tell you that things have moved on and juries don't like it if they behave like this anymore. But some of them were were sort of, more honest about it and the thing that really fascinated me was the trauma that they themselves suffered the unmet trauma secondary trauma of hearing and seeing these disgusting things over and over again and how they just kind of buried it and a lot of them admitted to having a drinking problem and talked about high profile barristers who had drinking problems like one who was it was repeatedly volunteered to me drank half a bottle of scotch a day and started before he actually went into court to get him to the place where he could bully people in the way that he does and in terms of the gender sort of breakdown there are more men aged over 50 in Victoria at the bar than any women and In New South Wales, there are twice as many men aged over 50 than any women. And they came through at a time where there weren't these uh, legislative restrictions on what they could do and say. And there was one barrister that I spoke to who talked about, you know, the measure of whether you'd done a good job was whether the complainant threw a Bible at you. Like, how many Bibles have you had thrown at you? So even though things have changed from a legislative sense and from a, you know, the courts, you know, have much more rules around what you can and can't do. And a lot of these guys say, oh, it's really hard to get a conviction now. Well, that's just not true because the numbers don't bear that out. But even though those things have happened, if you have come through at a time where really terrible behaviour towards a witness was perfectly acceptable and all part of a day's work, then I think it's really hard to kind of turn that ship around and and I think a lot of the time that they aren't actually aware of what they're doing but also they don't belong to an institution like you know for example Victoria Police where you know they have people coming in and they regularly are trained about better ways of treating people who have been through trauma. They don't see it as part of their job's they Work for themselves. Um, they do have what's known as CPD, continuing professional development, but they don't have to choose to do anything about trauma or sexual assault or anything like that. They just have to have a certain number of points that they can say that they have done for the year. So they can go through their career and not change at all. And I think, you know, from a gender point of view as well, I, I look, I. I really think it's important to note that you know women aren't necessarily like you know darlings <laughs> towards um towards victims, and men aren't necessarily awful, but I just think that women bring a different perspective you know, and women are more likely in a less serious sense perhaps to be uh, victims of these sorts of crimes. We as women have been walking through the world being ogled at, being groped, you know, in nightclubs, having people flash at us at railway stations, all of those sorts of things. We know what men are capable of. And I think a lot of men can have gone through, you know, if they were not victims of any sort of child sexual offence. They can have gone through their whole life and never had anything like this happen to them. And, in fact, I remember in the Pell appeal case, one of the appeal judges, the dissenting judge, who the High Court ultimately agreed with his legal opinion, but he talked about how one of the offences, which was an allegation of groping in a corridor, um, that it was implausibly brazen because, you know, there were other people in the corridor and it couldn't have happened. Well, as I say, ultimately the high court acquitted of that and the other offense. But I just felt like saying to to that judge, Your Honour, speak to some women in your life (laughs) because this sort of stuff happens all the time, everywhere. Every single girlfriend I have will have experienced that. And we all sort of talked about that at the time. So I think those sort of Life experiences might help to shape how women behave in the courts, and as I say, that doesn't mean that there aren't women who are bullies. And I think that it might also help to shape women's running of courtrooms as as judicial officers as well.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I wanted to mention one of the things that you bring out, which is that these barristers talk about the presumption of innocence as being this really noble driver of what they're doing. And, you know, everyone is entitled to that. And of course, that is the foundation of the criminal justice system. So, of course, I don't think anyone is disputing that. But as you say, people do have different approaches and you do outline some of the different approaches that barristers have taken, as well as the judicial officers and how they might intervene using those rules. But um, just to close out the conversation, maybe on your own experience, and how you then compare it to the 15 year old you were talking about who was cross examined by the exact same QC, the same barrister. I mean, it is quite a rare position that you're in to have been a witness in a proceeding and then to have that point of comparison that I presume would be pretty rare and then to write about it. So I just wanted to get your personal insight into that and what you took away from it and I guess how that propelled you on to examine this in greater depth in the book.
1: It was fascinating. So after my cross-examination by Robert Richter, I was told that I had done a really good job. And, you know, I feel like he didn't get the better of me. But the next day, I mean, I've said this many times I lay in bed and I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't get up to get a glass of water. I was humming with trauma. um, And it was sort of like this trauma that I wasn't lying there going, oh, he did this and then he did that. I just, it was like a physical experience. And that was such a politicising moment for me. And I just thought I have to write about this when I recover from this and when, of course, this case is finally dispensed with. Not about Pell, you know, I've already written about him, but about what this does to complainants and victims And then just coincidentally I was contacted by the mother of a young man called Paris Street and that was actually that was before I gave my evidence and I was in the throes of preparing for that which was a huge, as I write about in the book, huge, huge undertaking because I had to, you know, really just there was so much um, documentary material to prepare and legal meetings to have and so on. And I kind of forgot about her. Like I, I said I'd get back to her and I forgot about her. And then in October 2019 her son, the victim, Paris, contacted me himself and I it was by Twitter and for some reason I didn't see the message and he knew who my husband was and he contacted my husband and my husband said, you need to talk to this kid, you know. And so he was the St. Kevin's victim and we did a Four corner story about that which was, you know, very, very well received and led to massive change thanks to Paris Street's bravery at that school where the entire leadership team was let go and numerous teachers, I think it's up to nine or ten now, because of a culture at that school of protecting alleged perpetrators instead of children. And Paris was the victim of a number of grooming offences by an athletics coach who sent him disgusting text messages and said absolutely revolting things, which I won't repeat on radio but you can read about in the book in his home um, when Paris was only, you know, a teenager. He was cross-examined by Robert Richter and I was immediately curious to see the transcript of the cross-examination when Paris told me that Richter had cross-examined him. But because it was in the magistrate's court, it was not transcribed. But he said, but I've got a tape. And so I listened to this thing and I could not believe it. I could not believe that a 15-year-old boy was being spoken to in precisely the same way as, you know, an investigative journalist in her 40s with all the sort of protections and privileges and, you know, years of experience and law degree and all of those things that I have and the fact that, you know, I was kind of considered fair game, you know, they were out to try and get me to thereby sort of destroy the case, that he could speak to a 15-year-old in that same way. It was just shocking. I'll never forget listening to it for the first time. I just felt so sad for Paris, you know. And look, it's, what, 60 years down the track now and Paris is still not over it. He's still smarting. And, in fact, around about the time that I was writing Witness, and and this is included in the book, he wrote a letter to Mr Richter begging him to understand what he called the cognitive annihilation of my 15-year-old brain by him and Richter got back to him within it was you know an hour and 20 minutes or it was very quickly and the reply just floored me it was basically you know stop defining yourself as a victim I've had members of my family who've been through experiences that you can't even imagine, you know, stop defining yourself as a victim and make something of your life. And I I just, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, could you not reach into your heart and find some empathy and kindness for this young man? Paris is not a victim. He's a hero, and that's what hundreds of people who contacted four corners after our program said a very kind viewer agreed to do it for me it was a booklet of all the lovely things that had been said about paris by our viewers on twitter and facebook and you know so on mm. and it was 72 pages long oh amazing so, and, and you know over and over again, they said about they talked about his bravery, his courage, his you know the fact that he was a hero. He doesn't define himself as a victim, but he is really, really scarred not just by the court experience, which he had no preparation for whatsoever, but by the 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 way he was treated by this defense counsel but also by the institutional betrayal. his school and its community and you know again you know he was a teenager who was a straight A student and had a really fantastic life ahead of him and he struggles every day now yeah and he's luckier than a lot of other victims because he comes from a nice middle-class family went to a nice middle-class school and and as I say is um, academically very bright so what happens to the people that aren't well, I can tell you what happens because they, they, they write to me all the time and they tell me about how their lives have been destroyed by this and their faith in justice and the system and humanity has been destroyed by this. And that includes people, many people who have had convictions. So they've just walked away, although the reason that they came forward in the first place has been achieved they got, quote unquote, "justice." Their perpetrator was called to account, but they were so bruised by the process that in the end they wondered whether it was really worth it. And again, what a terrible indictment on the system. And I just hope like I really, really want I really want lawyers to read witness, and they are, and I'm getting lots of wonderful feedback, and that's really, really fantastic to hear. And I couldn't have written witness without the cooperation and honesty of a lot of barristers, you know, who opened up their hearts to me in, in, in lots of ways. And, you know, I've, I really like barristers. Like I, I sort of I don't want it to seem like, you know, I'm less like this anti-lawyer person. You know, I've relied on them as sources all my journalistic career. I find them entertaining and interesting and smart and all of those things, but I want them to look into their hearts and think about what if this was your child or your sister or your wife who was coming before this court? And I remember that one of them who featured in the book, John Desmond, cried on SBS when he was asked that very question. Why wouldn't he advise his daughter to disclose to police and go through the system? And he said, because of people like
0: me. Yeah. I remember seeing that at the time and it was a really striking exchange. And I've got to say it doesn't come across that you hate lawyers or barristers, that they come across as very endearing characters who have really interesting interests and, and ways of interacting and engaging with people. So I found that of real value that you were able to to draw on them and to draw on, as you say, their honesty about how things do run and, of course, the other people involved in the legal system that you also spoke with in this book Louise, I don't think it would be an understatement to say that you have to read the book (laughs) to really get the full picture of what you've done here, which it's just so extensive and so wonderfully engaging. And it's obviously a call to arms and action um, in terms of things that can be changed. And that is another thing that we've mentioned here that is also drawn out in the book. So I want to say a big thank you to you for your journalism, for this book and for your time here today. And um, thank you so much for doing this work on behalf of so many people who do appreciate it. Thanks so much, Amy. I really appreciate the time. And yeah, I ask people,
1: please, please read it and please, you know, make it known to policymakers and other institutions that this system needs to change.
0: Mm. And I should just mention that it won the People's Choice Award in the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. So a big congratulations on that. Another great endorsement of this book. Yeah, thank you. I'm really, really grateful to everyone who voted for
1: it. I think, you know, this community are very grateful and loyal people. So um, it was lovely to win that award and, uh, yeah, have that endorsement of work that is very close to my heart.
0: Well, thank you so
1: much, Louise. Thanks, Amy.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: So I'm very, very pleased and grateful, I've got to say, to be speaking with Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist at UNSW and a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And um, I'm going to be talking with Mary-Louise about all the latest COVID-19 developments. And there are many, I'm sure you're aware, and we'll be covering a vast range of topics, including the lockdown we're currently in, in here in Melbourne and Victoria more broadly, The causes, of course, of that, which is uh, the UK variants escaping from hotel quarantine, not just in Victoria, but also in other states, and what that means uh, in in terms of the future of hotel quarantine. And we'll also be talking about vaccines and the roll-up rollout here um, and the federal government's role as well as the state government's role and the mix of vaccines that we currently have and whether that will really uh, achieve herd immunity herd immunity through vaccination and what we need to do in order to achieve that herd immunity which is a very kind of critical goal because it means that we might get back to some sense of normalcy one day and hopefully um, not have to resort to short lockdowns when um, things do start to get out of hand. So I welcome Mary Louise now. Thank you so much once again for joining me. It's just really great to
3: have a chance to speak to you again. It's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners.
0: Well, I've got to say, uh, Mary Louise, that I know um, you have a vast experience um, in depth and also breadth. So I do want to make sure we touch on um, those topics that I've mentioned because they are all things that um, you're very much across. First of all, um, given what is so immediate for so many Victorians right now, we are currently in a five-day snap lockdown. Um, This is something which was announced to us on Friday at around midday or just after by the Premier and obviously the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton. Um, Now, this is something that I know many Victorians uh, would be really disappointed about because um, so many people are a little bit scarred probably from the last very long lockdown, which was about, oh, I don't even know now, months and months really um, of people staying at home under very harsh lockdowns. That said... Um, it does appear that this lockdown is warranted based on the facts and the information that we were given about hotel quarantine and this Holiday in cluster. Um, but first, of, uh, first up, I wanted to get your take on hotel quarantine in Victoria because of this uh, outbreak and this subsequent cluster, because the first case we just saw in Victoria of the UK variant escaping from hotel quarantine was not actually from the Holiday Inn. It was from, I think it was the Grand Hyatt. And that was actually a a really interesting case because it was um, the suspected transmission was the fact that two separate rooms, people in two separate rooms opened their doors at around similar times to collect their meals and that the viral load in one of the rooms that had... I believe three infected people in there um was apparently so strong or so um, significant that it actually went into the corridor uh, and then somehow subsequently infected another person. I'm not sure if that is still the uh, the view because we haven't really revisited that case, given it doesn't seem to have resulted in too many further, um subsequent community cases. But um, what are your thoughts first of all on that first case that we did see that saw a, a very late night press conference from Premier Daniel Andrews and his team?
3: So since June 5 last year, the World Health Organization committee that I have that developed um, Evidential-based infection control guidelines included not just about masks, but about the importance of airflow change. Uh, So it is not a surprise or should not be a surprise to anybody who is uh, on any of the committees, be they uh, federal or state, um, that... So they should understand about airflow change in hospitals. So if you understand the importance for airflow change in hospitals, because not every Australian hospital was built with um, the ability to have good uh, ventilation, Uh, they've then had to run around and improve their um, air conditioning uh, systems. To be able to cope with a normal level at 10 litres per person or patient um, per hour, and on a COVID ward, 12 litres. That means that 12 times, at, or about, around about that, um, uh, there's a, a, an airflow change that will clean out all tiny suspended aerosols in the air and replace it with fresh air. So that's a very high level 10 litres if you don't have a COVID patient. And I would defy any um, hotel to be able to reach that level without doing some changes. And they should have known this, that um, these hotels were a good idea for an emergency, but not for a continuous program, because... Um, I spoke with an expert on airflow change from Hong Kong and uh, uh, asked him what his experience was um, around the world. And he sits in his hotel rooms and, and um, works out how much airflow there is in his room. And he says that mostly uh, hotels have about eight uh, litres um, per hour. Now, when you add a large family because um, one of the one of the issues was a large family that was sick, um, then you really need to um, increase that airflow change. So hotel rooms should not have more than a couple of people because the um, uh, air conditioning units can't cope. and then you talk about, The corridors. So the corridors are usually dead space. And we uh, saw that happen in Hong Kong during 2003 with SARS. And it surprises me that we have to constantly be um, challenged with a a failure to keep learning. And we're not learning. So Mm -hmm. we've had a problem uh, around the country in every state. And it's because um, to learn would require a certification of every single hotel for their rooms uh, to, and a certification of how many people could be in those rooms to be able to reach 10 litres per person per hour and the corridors because so those two people on opposite sides, there should never be anybody on the opposite side of the corridor uh, when you have the possibility of travellers acquiring COVID still looking okay but developing um, uh, a viral load. That means that they're exhaling a lot of particles before they become known to um, the authorities in the quarantine hotel. Because remember, the travellers only get tested twice, on Mm -hmm. day two and day 10 and they should really be, t- and that's with a PCR, and that's with a nasopharyngeal uh, swab. That's not very nice. But in between time, they could do um, a PCR with, uh, with a saliva or a rapid antigen test that also includes, you can do a um, nasopharyngeal rapid antigen test that takes 15 to 20 minutes, or a nasal swab, um, so it doesn't go as high up. Uh, that um, is also a rapid antigen test, so that the authorities can identify travellers sooner and then move them out of the hotels so that they don't pose a problem to other travellers and, importantly, to staff who then acquire this infection as an occupational infection and then take it out into the community unbeknownst to them. So... That airflow change problem and opening the doors at the same time, there, quite frankly, shouldn't be anybody on the opposite side of the corridor, and I know that is a problem for them because that means they've got to find uh, twice as many hotels, but once you have somebody on the opposite side of a corridor that is probably less than two metres, and we know uh, influenza can travel around an S-bend at 2.6 metres, and that was found in a ferret model in about 1941. So it's not mm. like this is a surprise. Scientists do know this. They're either not on their advisory committee or they are not being listened to because we know this. And you have to have to design return travellers to come home. We need Australian and residents to come home and family members um, you know morally and ethically but we need to do it safely so uh, we can't and the next best approach would be to do them every staggered room across the corridor still not good enough because that corridor is basically dead space and they could put and I think they are now putting in some engineering to filter out the air so there are things called um, uh, HEPA filters that are used in Uh, hospitals to filter out the air. Uh, But nevertheless, um, I'm not, I do not understand the reticence of the federal government to take this over because uh, federally they do, uh, they are supposed to look after borders and this is a border issue and the federal government should take this over and all states and territories come together and share what they have learnt as, um, as they've gone along, what worked, what didn't work and uh, develop best practice.
0: Mm. Well, there are so many federal policy touch points to this issue. It isn't a state issue, um, although delivery of it is currently up to the states and in some cases um, they are better prepared or versed to be able to do some of the delivery. Um, It should obviously be... There should be some coordinated federal approach at the very bare minimum. Um, It does remind me that there's been a great deal of criticism of... Uh, one particular uh, health body, the Commonwealth's Infection Control Expert Group. And this isn't new criticism. This has been something that happened all throughout 2020. Um, I'm aware that the Australian Society of Anaesthetists have been advocating, as also has the AMA and a number of other scientists, professors and doctors throughout 2020, about the issue of needing to formally recognise that aerosol transmission is not just possible, um, but that that it could be a significant mode of transmission. And that with these more infectious variants like the UK variant, although there's dispute around just how much more infectious it is, um, there is this question about Um, That body, which does provide advice to AHPPC and AHPPC, you know, obviously play one key role and also involve a number of the state uh, chief health officers and chief medical officers and the federal chief medical officer as well. So I wonder whether that is something that has also been missing and, for example, whether um, the the Australian Society of Anesthetists, as just one group, um, are valid in their criticism to say that it's time for the ICEG to abandon their outdated views about the transmission of COVID, this is a quote from them, when the number of experts agreeing about aerosol transmission is increasing as rapidly as the virus, and then we've also seen in the last day that Professor Brendan Crabb from the Burnett Institute also said that he thinks there's been, quote, a recalcitrant attitude towards accepting that airborne transmission is a significant mode of transmission. Do you think that, given what you've just told us about airborne transmission and also the deficiencies in a hotel as a structure to, you know, combat that type of transmission, do you think that we that's missing that that an adequate scientific acknowledgement of the significance the potential significance or actual significance of airborne transmission um, is needed and that the reason why that may not be happening is that it does have substantial implications including that maybe hotel quarantine isn't appropriate and that maybe n95 masks would then be or should be mandated across all staff who are in those corridors for example.
3: Okay, so um, many of us have been advocating for uh, the acceptance of opportunistic airborne spread uh, since the beginning of uh, hotels being used as quarantine um, uh, stations. WHO was criticised initially by um, a scientist from Queensland saying that we had not accepted air airborne spread. And that's that's not exactly accurate. The um, guidelines we were developing were for hospitals and uh, airborne spread was uh, very obviously included in that. But what um, the group that criticized WHO didn't understand was that the guidelines were were couched within the environment that the hospital needed a minimum Of 10 liters per patient per per hour, a minimum. So when you have that, you don't have the buildup of tiny little particles, and uh, you you have much less risk of inhaling it. And surgical masks, if they if not the ones and that go around the ears, they don't fit very well. But the ones that tie behind your head uh, should. Provide sufficient um, evidence uh, protection for uh, people in hospitals, and we did say that they, that anyone that was in a COVID ward must wear a um, an N95 and goggles. So uh, that was a misunderstanding on their part, but because they assumed that we were not accepting this in the community but we were writing guidelines for hospitals and then of course Australia was really about the only country Australia New Zealand looking at um return travelers and of course there was Singapore um, and that was a totally different environment and I kept saying last year these are not proxy hospitals and um you won't these ho- these hotels won't Cope well because they won't have at least ten liters uh, change, and that was duly ignored. The other thing that um, I was trying to get through to them was, and of course, I don't I don't appear in front of any of these panels. I am not part of any of the um, st- uh, state or ter- or um, federal uh, decision bodies. Um, I do sit on a task force for our New South Wales Clinical Excellence Commission, and I, my role is to update them on what we are, are finding and discussing. Um, th- all the things I'm allowed to talk about. Um, mm. Not allowed. Not allowed to talk about who said what and which country said what, uh, so that I, they are uh, kept up to speed constantly. So all the other panels, I, I have no idea how they make decisions, but. In 2015, my PhD student, who is now um, uh, graduated, uh, Dr. Jan Grolton, um, the other supervisor, Professor Bill Rawlinson, and you and Tovey uh, and myself, um, did a study looking at the size of particles for influenza, and um, that that well, we did the the lab work. Long before that, but of course, it takes a while for publications to to get to a point that they're ready to be released. And we we were concerned that scientists had a real belief that um, viruses that are exhaled are exhaled only in one size particle, in influenza only in aerosol particles, uh, common cold only in droplets, etc. And we wanted to identify whether that was true. We had no no, no um, decision either way because I'd been um, uh, employed uh, by the, the then chief medical officer to identify the evidence of guidelines pro- to protect healthcare workers during pandemic influenza. And this was one of our... Um, Uh, lab test that we did after I presented to the then chief medical officer that um, there was no evidence to suggest that influenza was only one size particle, which then goes to how do we protect people. So the lab test identified that in fact flu and other respiratory infections of patients that we tested produce both size particles. And why this is important is because SARS in two thousand and three, after the, um, did did some studies as well, and they identified a similar thing. So there's been a flurry of new work done, not just by our little lab one, but by other people, particularly in Hong Kong and Asia. Um, they're right to this, uh, and they too um, identified that viruses can be expelled in both size particles. So to think that uh, SARS-CoV two only is droplet, is foolhardy, because that suggests that we're always okay at about 1.52 metres. And that's not true. Um, Certainly, we're safe out in the community outside with when we're asked to wear a mask or without a mask to keep our distance. We are quite safe. We've got Um, airflow around us outside. We've got heat and relative humidity that um, may be detrimental to the large sized particles, they fall fast. And even the smaller sized particles, they dissipate rapidly. It's when they don't dissipate rapidly, inside corridors of quarantine hotels, inside restaurants, inside quarantine rooms, that you have what I would call opportunistic airborne spread. Absolutely. There is no doubt about this. So for any Australian panel to not accept this has not kept up with the literature, and it takes a while to keep up with the literature. You can't just have half a dozen people on a panel thinking they can read all of the information. At WHO, we have a group from Harvard University, Imperial, Oxford, etc., going through the evidence, coming to our group, presenting the evidence to us, and then we make decisions about what the evidence based on uh, top quality um, science or on what we call precautionary principle, where the evidence is equivocal. And so we go for, let's be careful. And of course, then I've got my experience from uh, examining how healthcare workers got SARS in 2003. And of course, my um, PhD student Dr Jan Grolton's work in looking at uh, making uh, infection control um, guidelines uh, as safe as possible and as evidential as possible uh, for uh, the then uh, pandemic influenza that we were expecting. So it takes a cast of thousands to develop really good uh, body of evidence, getting rid of all of the very poor evidence that's been... um, published to date. It's very hard, of course, to develop some around uh, good quality evidence. If you're going to use human beings, can't use randomised controlled trials. They're often very um, unethical. So we got the body of evidence together and and you do get airborne um, um, transmission in these Uh, places like restaurants, that's why I've constantly reminded the community and hopefully the authorities through the community and through interviews like this, that um, when there's some circulating virus and you still think it's safe enough for people to go to restaurants and bars and coffee shops, you have to have all the windows and doors open. You have to ensure that you reach at least 10 litres per customer per hour Airflow change, uh, and you still have to protect the workers uh, with um, a mask or uh, and or a face shield if there's a lot of circulation of virus or if there's poor airflow change.
0: Mm. And these recommendations clearly are not reflected um, in our current practices in the sense that. You know, we don't um, have that level of airflow recommended for every single indoor environment, particularly a cafe or a restaurant or a bar when they are open and when we're not in lockdown. Um, And we also do have varying mask rules as well, Um, obviously across Australia but even in Victoria, you know, sometimes we have mask wearing in cafes uh, when you're not eating food but, of course, many people will just as I've witnessed, walk in and out of a cafe without a mask on or sit down without the mask on because they're going to eat anyway and so they think, what's the point in, you know, Mm -hmm. wearing my mask for five minutes? Mm -hmm. It does seem like these are, you know, particularly problematic uh, situations because the rules aren't really, in effect, going to prevent transmission if there is, as you say, that underlying virus in the community that we, you know, haven't identified or that we do know is there but we're not sure exactly where...
3: Um, sorry, go ahead, Marie-Louise. Well, you see, well, you've see, you, you picked, you pointed to a really um, important precautionary principle, and, and that says we need to get the public used to wearing masks, and they should be asked to wear masks, for example, on um, transport, and I know that uh, Victoria's been very good at that, um, and New, New South Wales has been really slow to come to the party, um, so slow that uh, I couldn't understand why. And in public, uh, I um, asked for masks to be uh, worn in on public transport regardless of the transmission so that people get used to it and they don't even question it. They don't have to go from um, not wearing to wearing and change their behaviour. But that was uh, incredibly... Um, Stubborn on the part of the um, authorities uh, in New South Wales. And I couldn't understand it because, yes, it is annoying to wear them, yeah. um, but um, in buses, uh, so this uh, fantastic expert from Hong Kong uh, uh, explained to us about an outbreak in um, China in a bus. Uh, the bus had, and it's not an unusual bus, three litres um, per passenger per hour. That's not nearly enough and you can't open up the windows. Mm. Uh, we've seen a COVID person being transported um, by a coach um, in New South Wales who infected the driver. That's right.
0: I do so, remember that. Yeah.
3: You, so it happened? It's the der factor. And, mm. and to think it can't happen in the community is non-scientific, really. Um, so I was very surprised. And one of the arguments was, well, we can't get the bus drivers to find people or require passengers to wear them. Well, Australians aren't normally difficult to get on with you tell them a rule you give them the rationale and they follow it so if there is a problem with somebody not wearing a mask everybody else is wearing one and we have inspectors for the opal card that get on and off and um if you if your opal card hasn't worked or haven't used it you get fined so you don't expect the poor bus driver to be um the um the person that in, uh, ensures uh, that uh, somebody does wear a mask. And worst-case scenario, you hand somebody the mask because mm. they may not have it. I mean, in the um, early days of HIV, um, the authorities couldn't understand why young uh, men weren't wearing condoms. And I, we pointed out that because um, I did um, my um, my doctorate in, um, in HIV... Uh, we pointed out that it doesn't seem expensive to people who've got a job. Yeah. <laughs> the condoms were expensive. And the same thing with masks. I mean, just hand it out to them. Um, it's a very minimal cost uh, to to save uh, infections continually to be circulated, but also saves contact traces from uh, running around in circles trying to work out how somebody acquired it.
0: Mm, Absolutely. It's a really great point about, um, you know, people needing to step up in the community as well. And if you're, for example, in a supermarket, I've seen many people not carrying masks. um, And, you know, some people may have exemptions, but I'm sure it's not that many because I've seen you know sometimes 10 people in a supermarket uh, all not wearing masks so you know in that case it seems like it would be a great idea to hand them out um, and give them to people if they're you know sticking their t-shirt up around their nose because it looks like they've forgotten one Um, you know because I have seen that quite a lot too Uh, so it's you know common sense approach does seem pretty useful in this situation Um, I want to before we leave aerosol and airborne transmission I just wanted to touch on the other key case here in Victoria at least because I should remind everyone and we have been referencing this that we did see the UK variant leave and get out of hotel quarantine in Queensland and in Western Australia and they did have um, broad city-wide lockdowns in a short sharp situation like we are although we ours is statewide The cluster that we have actually seen come from the Holiday Inn uh, airport hotel is pretty significant um, in size because numerous staff have become infected. So, And it wasn't just one type of staff member in the sense that it wasn't just, you know, the people who stand in the corridors near the rooms. Some of them, you know, didn't even seem to have very direct uh, contact with any of the residents who were there in hotel quarantine. Some of them were administrative people behind those kind of perspex screens who may see them when they arrive from the airport to check them in, um, but they may not have future contact with people arriving uh, internationally. So I I would love to also just get your thoughts on that hotel uh, cluster that has caused us to lock down. Um, Because one particular device has been pointed to was a nebulizer that's used for people with asthma. And I have seen uh, a number of respiratory doctors say that spaces are just as effective um, with people with asthma and so maybe that's one alternative is to provide people with asthma with spaces so that they are not left with no equipment in hotel quarantine but do you think that that's a kind of fair situation to suggest that just one uh, medical device, a nebulizer, just like a CPAP machine for those um, who have sleep apnea, could be so aerosol generating that that would cause an outbreak in a cluster like that because I have seen evidence in um, the British Medical Journal suggesting that a CPAP machine, for example, doesn't produce as much aerosols or generate as many aerosols as, for, for example, coughing or speaking does.
3: Well, well you've got um, you've got a machine that is um, creating uh, small particles anyway um, uh, that leak outside um, the um, the uh, mask that goes to the face. and uh, that uh, is moist, uh, which is quite nice because it can carry um, virus in it. But really, what you've got, is the poor airflow change in the room allowing particles to build up. That's the point. Mm. So the family, I believe, were three people. Um, That's a lot of people in a room when you do not have enough airflow change. So that's not just 10 litres per room. That's 10 litres per patient or per person in a a, uh, ward. And in a quarantine hotel, it should be 10 litres per person in that room. So there are three people, they're all breathing, uh, their particles are not being refreshed. Um, There's a potentially an increase in relative humidity and the virus, there's been a lovely scientific paper looking at uh, what um, temperature and humidity Viruses like to spread either as droplet or airborne, and that um, uh, um, machine, that nebulizer, uh, may have assisted. So it's not just one thing; it's not just using the nebulizer, but it's also the amount, the temperature, and the humidity in the room, and the number of people that are breathing out, and uh, the the. Uh, room is not being um, refreshed properly. And then you've got another factor. And that is when you're using a nebulizer in a hospital, your your best practice is to use it in a negative air pressure room. And that is a room that when you open the door, the air rushes into the room, not out. Mm. Now, these rooms in a hotel and at home are not negative air pressure at all. They're not positive. They're just... But mind you, though, the way you set up your windows and your other doors may change the flow of air. So when they open up the door, there's no um, uh, um, system that will push the air into the room to keep it in the room. So it leaks out into the corridor. And then you've got another factor, the dead space in the corridor, which I would love to see... an engineering report that says, don't worry, Mary Louise, we've got it covered. We've got 10 litres change in that corridor for a couple of people in a corridor at any one time per hour. But I don't believe they can ever reach that unless at the end of the corridor they've got a window that you can open and at the other end a door that you can open but it's unlikely. So you've got the corridor built up to allow any small particles to hang in the air, to again provide an opportunity for those particles to be suspended in large enough numbers for somebody to breathe it in, who might have put their uh, mask just unbel- un- beneath their nose, because they're a bit over it, they've worked for hours, or somebody on the other side of the corridor um, not wanting to wear a mask when they come to the door. Uh, Then you've got the poor airflow change per family in that room, and then you've got a nebulizer that may improve the transmissibility of tiny particles by giving it just the right relative humidity, not too much, because if you've got too much, the particles will fall, but just enough to keep them alive. And then you open up the door and you've got a perfect storm. Um, And I haven't uh, given you one other factor. One, we don't know what the um, infectious dose is. But, and, and that's important because we don't know if you can catch it through your eyes. Your eyes have an ACE2 receptor site and, uh, you know, it will go down into your lacrimal um, uh, um, glands and and into your nose, and then you might breathe it into your lungs. We don't know how much you need to go through your eyes um, and eventually get to your nose and then eventually get to your lungs. You might need an awful lot, but we don't know. So in a ward, we get healthcare workers to wear Uh, protection for their eyes on a COVID ward. And uh, you need protection of your eyes when you're a worker uh, in those dead spaces in hotel rooms, uh, in hotels rather. Uh, So they should have all been wearing eye protection or a face shield. And I think face shields would have given them that additional protection because it would stop them from fiddling with their mask because they get hot. Or if they did accidentally um, move the mask under their nose or their chin, they've got a little bit of protection, uh, additional protection, and it's all about layering of protection. Outbreak management, infection control is layering one thing onto the next, onto the next, and you've got to be a bit of a disaster um, forecaster to be able to do good outbreak management to prevent escape of virus, because if you think it's all going to be good, she'll be right. You're not going to be good at this job.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a great point, is that, you know, you need to predict some of the unlikely but possible scenarios that could lead to these, and even the very likely, because it seems like some of these likely scenarios haven't been planned for in a way that's adequate to manage the risk. If we're summarising the situation about hotel quarantine here. I know that the change was just recently made to just go from uh, surgical masks to both surgical masks and face shields. They haven't instituted all people to, to wear N95 masks but they said they would increase the use of them but didn't say where exactly. Um, would it be fair to say that in order to make hotel quarantine Uh, a a feasible situation, a feasible option to bring return travellers back, that we would need to look and reassess the use of PPE and whether that's adequate to also... Introduce things like rapid antigen testing so that we can get results within 20 minutes um, and have an understanding of uh, whether return travellers and staff have virus within a short time frame every day. And then also, would we need to have far more rigorous ventilation assessments and potentially more substantial changes to hotels in order to make that um, also safer? Are those the kind of things that would give you peace of mind and potentially other epidemiologists peace of mind in terms of making this uh, this system less risky, not risk-free, but less risky, and also uh, reduce the chance of these variants getting into the community?
3: Um, all of the above. However, if I was a, a union representative, I'd be saying you can't just give N95 And eye protection. You don't need gloves. You need to be using alcohol-based hand rub all the time because gloves get contaminated. And, in fact, um, uh, uh, a man called Dr Greg Whiteley and others, um, Karen Vickery at Macquarie University, did a lovely paper on how gloves can actually increase the transmission of certain bacteria Mm. from one a um, surface to another, and um, we we believe that you should be using hand hygiene unless you're going to come across um, body fluids of a patient or a a traveler. So if I were um, a uh, a union repre- a union um, boss of um, these um, staff that are working in quarantine, I'd be saying, to, uh, because they're certainly not listening to infectious, infection control epidemiologists or outbreak epidemiologists, they may listen to um, a union person to say, it's all very well and good to provide best level um, uh, PPE, but you're putting the staff in a war zone and you can reduce that risk as they do in hospitals by increasing airflow change pretty simple yeah so until until every state and territory can provide certification that all the rooms can meet that standard per traveler and that the corridors are not dead space and if they are that they've all got um an ability to um uh, compensate that dead space and they are not putting travellers on the opposite side of the corridor, even if they are trying to improve uh, airflow in the corridors, um, then you're still putting staff at risk in a war zone with an incredibly clever, if it did have a personality or an IQ, an incredibly clever virus. Um, This is... I don't know if you've watched um, all those great um, scary movies on Alien and, and yeah. stuff, but, you know, they're they're predators. You know, they are really, really clever. Yeah. And, and this virus, think of it like that predator. Mm-hmm. What will we be doing that, that this virus can work its way around? That's how you have to look at the enemy. And you don't put staff who are just newly trained, uh, you don't get them anywhere near the traveller uh, because they could be positive, and you're right. Um, we, I wrote an open letter to um, ministers with uh, some colleagues of mine asking for rapid antigen testing last year on December 9. That was duly ignored. I then tweeted it uh, somewhere around December 15. I then wrote a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald Uh, that were similar to the open letter. And um, then uh, some um, quarantine uh, programs have increased uh, testing, but still using um, PCR, which is the gold standard. But instead of having to make these poor, staff members have a nasopharyngeal swab, which is not overly comfortable if you're going to have it every day. Um, So they've used, a saliva one. Now they need to uh, decide that they're either going to have to do these saliva every day, but the better way of doing it is to augment it with a um, a nasopharyngeal or a nasal swab for a rapid antigen test, uh, because augmenting different types of testing. And this rapid antigen test takes about 15 to 20 minutes is particularly good when you keep repeating it. So it builds up a really good um, accuracy for negative, Uh, certainly positive Mm -hmm. as well. But what you're hoping is, is that you release your staff back home, knowing that you've got a great, deal of certainty that they're going back home negative. So you want really high levels of accuracy for negativity because it's a screening done, not a diagnostic test. So you would add those in between um, your saliva PCR test, and that might improve the accuracy of all of those tests and reduce the spread. But it's not just about capturing them before they go into the community, because there's no point in capturing them once they've gone into the community, because then you've got to do contact tracing. You've then got to get people to stay at home for 14 days. um, And then then you might have a lockdown. It's a Bringing them in real time before they leave, but it's also making sure they never get COVID in the first place. Yeah. So you improve the engineering, you improve the PPE, you improve their training, but you don't get um, early trained people to go anywhere near the door of a traveller to deliver anything. Or um, you, of course, um, I'm sure they have the rule that says um, that they leave something at the door, they knock and go. Mm. But nevertheless, um, you, there has to be a reason why there's been so many um, issues. And human beings, when they're not a doctor and a nurse, and even when they are, get very tired of wearing masks. Um, and I did a report for um, a hospital in Hong Kong uh, that had SARS in 2003 to look at how healthcare workers were acquiring it. There were 63 only. Um, They put in negative air pressure in every single room, regardless of whether the patients were no longer actively sick, they were rehabilitating. And that reduced the number down to 63, but they still had 63. Healthcare workers who acquired SARS. And one of the reasons that I identified, apart from rushing in to save a patient while they were intubating, putting a tube down a patient's throat, was that it's very hard work to be in full PPE for eight hours. And um, the CEO and myself came to the conclusion that you can only really let people wear them because they're not designed for day they would do a surgical procedure and even then um, often the surgeon has his mask replaced um and on the ward it's to go in do the care and move out but these help, but these workers in quarantine are wearing them all day long except for of course when they're having a break but that can be a very that can be for many hours so they need to also consider giving them more breaks without PPE so they're less likely to fiddle with their PPE.
0: Mm. Mary-Louise, we're running low on time, but I do need to get to vaccines. And so thank you for taking us through um, infection control so beautifully. It's something I know is really missing and we need that level of detail. But vaccinations are also a really critical part now of Australia's response. And the federal government has been roundly criticised by a number of people to say that, A, we don't have vaccines here Within a you know decent time frame, although you could argue that maybe we should wait our turn, but I'm you know that's a little bit debatable, and two that the Australian government initially put their eggs in the AstraZeneca basket, really a lot more heavily than they did with uh, Pfizer, which is an mRNA vaccine. It is different uh, than the AstraZeneca in terms of uh, the way that it's been designed and the technology that it's been using, and. Uh, Of course, there is the Novavax vaccine, which will be um, coming through at a later stage if that is approved by the TGA. And of course, the AstraZeneca vaccine still is yet to be approved by the TGA. But we do have approval for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, Obviously, there are limitations with all of the vaccines in the sense that this has been expedited, although all the processes have been followed. So we should have confidence in the science behind these vaccines and the TGA's assessment of it. But one of the the criticisms um, that has been made, especially by healthcare workers, but also by epidemiologists and others who really look at this uh, in a great level of detail, is that I guess vaccines have a, a purpose. don't they in the sense that we are trying to inoculate people against getting uh, disease at all Um, preferably no disease but obviously um, we would want to prevent at minimum severe disease and hospitalization but as we've discussed in previous conversations Uh, mild disease isn't that mild uh, when we're talking about COVID-19, and also those who get a so-called mild case of COVID-19 can be left with ongoing chronic health issues. So, this vaccination program uh, is very critical around the world for all of these reasons. So, when you yourself have been doing modelling around vaccines, and particularly looking at the doses that Australia has been buying, and also the strategic framework for the rollout, which Um, is quite interesting. Uh, What are your thoughts on how Australia can achieve herd immunity through the vaccines that we have bought um, and the number of doses that we will have at our disposal? And do you think that the current mix of vaccine types and the the, the shown efficacy of at least uh, preventing disease, although we don't know about preventing transmission, but the current efficacy rates of the Pfizer vaccines and the AstraZeneca vaccines, do you believe that that will provide Australia with enough coverage um, or is there another another strategy that we need to make sure that we are deploying around these vaccines to make sure that there's enough pickup and enough coverage?
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, the Pfizer, uh, as your as you and your listeners understand, um provide ninety five percent protection against um, disease. Now, a vaccine, can either protect against disease or protect against infection. So that's very different. Uh, but we're, And this is because we're told the vaccine efficacy uh, against um, disease rather than any level of infection and also transmission blocking capacity. In other words, you might get um, an asymptomatic infection and you might pass it on, but if you have this vaccine you won't get either. You won't get the an asymptomatic infection and you won't pass it on, or you won't get a, a non-hospitalised, and you're right, we shouldn't really call it mild. It's not fair to those that have experienced some of these awful um, signs and symptoms, um, and you won't pass it on. So that's a vaccine against infection. But because they wanted to roll this out and, and do everything rapidly, it was, and it's terribly expensive running trials, they identified um, of all the volunteers how many of them uh, developed um, symptoms and then tested them if they develop symptoms. So we now know that uh, Pfizer protects 95 uh, percent of those vaccinated against symptoms, severe symptoms, that's not the same as protecting you against infection. However, having said that, the logic is it probably does. So uh, we're already seeing incredibly um, um, positive signs from Israel, who have um, uh, vaccinated uh, five five million. Israelis already, not all of them have uh, the second dose, um, but about 5 million have had at least one dose. And uh, they've noticed already a drop in uh, holization and uh, and deaths. So, and Pfizer, um, and Israel had a relationship with Pfizer that um, they would share the information. So we're getting this because Israel's sharing this information that also Pfizer vaccine reduces uh, the viral load, so that if you're one of those 5%, sadly, that might catch it after having Pfizer, your viral load will be lower, so you're at less risk of passing it on to everybody else. Great news. Now, we're not all going to get this. Bad news, sad news, um, because it does have such high efficacy, which means that If we don't have, for example, B117, which is the variant from the UK, circulating, then to get herd immunity, if we gave this to everybody or offered it, we'd only have to get 70% of the population uh, vaccinated with Pfizer to get herd immunity. If a couple of ifs, if um, we could get 70% to take it, and if It prevented um, uh, had uh, transmission blockage capacity, which it most likely does. So once you add the circulating B117 uh, strain, which sadly um, is uh, escaping from quarantine hotels in Victoria, you've now got to vaccinate 85% of the population to protect um, uh, the rest of the population from getting COVID and having it. Going around like you know um, Groundhog Day. Now, given that Australia has um, going to start to manufacture its own AstraZeneca and it is um, also uh, taking delivery of AstraZeneca, there's going to be about a forty-sixty um, ratio of uh, or AstraZeneca. So I'll just take you through if AstraZeneca had a very, very, very high level of efficacy, the best case scenario of, say, about 82%, and that's based on uh, the the range, the upper limit um, for um, vaccine efficacy that was published at one stage. I identified that we would have to... Uh, a- now, I'm assuming that everyone's taken up the – this includes the 40% that will be offered Pfizer and 60% that will be offered AstraZeneca, and AstraZeneca had a vaccine efficacy of 82%. We'd have to vaccinate 75% of the population, so that's 5% more than if everybody got Pfizer. And if the B117 strain was circulating, that would then have to be 90% of the population. And then I'll just take you quickly to the lower end of the efficacy. So, if AstraZeneca was only in the sixty percent range, uh, fifty to sixty percent, without the circulating strain, and with some forty percent getting via Pfizer as well, we'd have to then increase the coverage of vaccination to ninety percent. And of course, once we had B one one seven, because. Um, AstraZeneca and uh, doesn't do so well with B117. You'd have to uh, vaccinate 100% of the population. So the fact that you're under lockdown is a, is sadly the right thing to do because you want to get rid of B117 out of the community, and uh, so that if uh, once some of the staff start being given Pfizer and the community are given AstraZeneca. You do not want that variant or any strain to get into a human body before you've developed an antibody response that will protect you. And Pfizer and, well, let's say AstraZeneca, after about day seven, only about 50% of people will have some protection, which is great, but the other half won't have enough. So if this virus gets into you before day seven, or after day seven with 50% that just haven't been able to get enough um, immune response and need that second dose, that virus then has a playground. And remember, this is like um, Predator. This virus now has a playground to learn from an inadequate um, immune response how to get around this and how to become more difficult to, um, uh, to... fight against with a vaccine Mm. and it's called escape mutation and you don't want to give it this playground so you're under lockdown to get rid of um the and i don't think you've been told this but this is one reason why I would have, if I had been asked, sure you're going to lockdown. I would have gone absolutely. Sadly, yes, you have to get the quarantine hotels absolutely up to a hundred percent, because you don't want this predator uh, circulating before everybody gets their second dose, um, because it you'll give it a playground to learn how to uh, mutate and get around our um, immune response. Mm. So um, the mary Louise, sorry,
0: I'm just yes. going to have to, to finish it there, unfortunately, okay. because I've got to run to my next interview. Um, but maybe we can pick this up again. And uh, apologies for all the tech issues which did delay us to begin with. Um, but I, no I guess problems. then we should mention that obviously vaccine hesitancy is another issue in the population and we need to... Uh, make sure that they do get on board when they have the opportunity. But as you've just been explaining, it is up to the federal government, who is in charge of ordering these vaccines, to ensure that we have enough of the vaccines required to give us that herd immunity, that level of herd immunity that means that this virus won't evolve and mutate. And as you say, learn how to become more transmissible and to become more deadly, which is what we've been seeing around the world when, you know, this transmission gets it's out of hand. So um, I'm sorry to have to finish it there. uh, But I hope that people can actually make sure that they follow you on Twitter. I know you're not prolific uh, in the sense of the numerous tweets, but when you do tweet, it's a very high value and they can check out the graph and the modelling that you have just been talking about to get more information about it and um, to get you know a sense of where your thoughts are at. Uh, so thanks so much, Mary Louise, for chatting with me today. I'm really, really grateful again, and uh, I'm so glad that we have your expertise here, and also that the World Health Organization does too.
3: Oh, thank you so much, and it's so lovely to be able to talk to you at length to explain the complexity. So um stay safe, and everybody have that vaccine. You're doing it for everybody else.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: I'm very pleased that I get to now speak with Australian author and lawyer Anthony Dapper, and although he's also a Hong Konger because he's lived over there and in China for over 20 years, I believe. So he's very much a local and uh, has been celebrating Lunar New Year, no doubt, over there, which uh, Lunar New Year's Eve um, was Thursday evening. And then, of course, uh, Lunar New Year or Chinese New Year is uh, more than one day, which is fantastic in terms of public holiday. So hopefully, Anthony had a wonderful long weekend, Uh, I'm I'm very much hoping. But we are going to be speaking about uh, the issues over in Hong Kong, particularly the political situation and the crackdowns over there since. The introduction of the national security laws, but of course, it did start earlier than that. Although things have definitely been escalating since we last spoke with Anthony, so I very much welcome uh, Anthony now, and thank you so much for joining me again.
2: Uh, you're welcome, and yeah, happy New Year of the Ox and Gong Fat as we uh, say here in Hong Kong.
0: Absolutely, um, I I was really excited. I um, have often celebrated it and uh, got a red packet, which perhaps I'm now too old for that. I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm a bit sad if I am too old. The,
2: the, the, the tradition, rather sort of rather oddly, is it's for it's for unmarried uh, people to give to unmarried people is sort of okay. the tradition. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but anyway, I'm too it's,
0: old then. Excellent. Yeah, I'm going to keep on milking it then um, and look forward to another red packet. Uh, But I think the best part is really the dumplings and the gluttonous rice balls at the end of uh, Lunar New Year, which I love the most. But um, it is a very exciting time of year and spring festival, of course. And it does mean that, you know, a lot of people at spring festival time are trying to see their family and, and visit and catch up, and often it's one of the only times in the year that they do get a chance to meet up Um, given that COVID is happening obviously um, that must have kind of reduced the amount of travel and flow of people around Hong Kong is that is that the case at the moment first of all I just wanted to get a sense of what the situation is over in Hong Kong in a general sense given the coronavirus pandemic and then we can jump into that political situation
2: yeah, so we've been nearing the end of uh, either our third or our fourth wave of sort of losing count, but we've had quite a long, not not a hard lockdown like you had in Melbourne, but a but a, a series of lockdown measures like restaurants being closed early and, and, and public gatherings of, of more than four people being prohibited and these sorts of things. And so, yes, as a result, I think a lot of people uh, cancelled their, their New Year's visiting plans and, and just stayed home, and certainly there weren't big banquets in restaurants and the traditional annual our work's display was also uh, also cancelled. Um, uh, so it, w- it was a fairly quiet Chinese New Year. But that said, people did still uh, get around, and, and among the few. Um, Conversations I had with, with with visiting friends in sort of small gatherings. Um, one of the big topics of conversation, and I suspect one of the big topics of conversation around any of the the Chinese New Year dining tables among families this year, was uh, whether to stay or whether to go. With uh, many Hong Kongers talking about whether uh, they should, in fact, um, leave Hong Kong in light of the the political situation and the offer that many of them who have um, BNO passports have to be able to relocate to the UK.
0: Mm, yeah, I had noticed, um you know, following along on Twitter that uh, I believe Hong Kong did go in into some level of a lockdown more recently and of course I'm sure that's you know not the only time restrictions have been introduced but uh, a lot of people have hoped that um, that you know some of the countries who had uh, this first version of SARS uh, would be dealing you know better with this uh, second SARS coV two and um, the effects of it although obviously it's much different virus to the initial um, outbreaks that occurred with the first SARS virus. so it is mm presenting a range of challenges, isn't it, even for those countries that are very competent?
2: Yeah, it, it, ha- it has been. I mean, as I say, we've managed to avoid any of the really hard lockdowns that you had in Melbourne, but we have had yeah, very, you know, very serious challenges among mm. the many Major disruptions have been, of course, that schools have been um, cancelled for, for several months now, and everyone, including both you know, children and parents, trying to deal with, with online schooling. But hopefully, we're coming to an end of, of that. We're now down to single digit new cases each day, and everyone's very hopeful that after the, the Chinese holiday period has passed and, and, and the, the risk of sort of you know, super spreader events from gatherings and things in that period are passed, then the government might start to open things up a little bit here, hopefully.
0: Yeah, that's um, really great to get that that first hand account because it's kind of hard to tell from over here, just seeing yeah. the headlines. Um, and similarly, I I feel that it's it's the same way I guess um, because we have been following these protests and the protest movements, and you yourself have been following it for much longer than I have um, in terms of, you know, the um, the umbrella movement. And, um, you know, there's been so many political movements very much interrelated in Hong Kong. And we've spoken about this in the past um, and about your two wonderful books, which I do make, want to make sure people do read if you haven't yet already. Um, but the last time we spoke, we were talking about the national security laws that had been in. Introduced, And we were going through what they were and, I guess, at that time speculating how they would be potentially implemented and enforced. Uh, we weren't yet sure exactly how it would play out and what it would mean for Hong Kong. Now we do have a clearer idea of what's going on. Um, but similarly, this isn't necessarily making major headlines. We are getting news updates, but um, it's not in the news every day like we did so in the past so mm. it would be great and I would love to hear from you about um, what you've been noticing probably firstly at a broad level in terms of these national security laws and what they have meant for Hong Kongers um, and what the, the I guess the main features have been if if that's mm. even possible to summarize because I know there's been a lot.
2: yeah sure and I think that the, the best way to to summarize it would be to say that it's it's now, becoming clear as we're sort of some six months into having the national security law, that it's being used um, to uh, affect a a, a wholesale social re-engineering of Hong Kong. I think the government is seeking to completely change the common expectations and understanding among Hong Kong society of what is is, is and isn't acceptable behavior politically. And it's being done through a a variety of ways. The, The most obvious and, and and sort of the most extreme, I guess, is, is arrests. We've had now almost 100 people arrested on various charges under the national security law. None of those have yet come to trial. So we don't know yet the outcome of, of what's going to happen to those people that have been arrested. But that's having an, an immediate, of course, sort of an intimidating effect on on the, the, the on, on, on the protester movement and and on the pan democratic politicians as well in, in Hong Kong. Um one of the most notable things was just a few weeks ago a mass arrest of fifty five pro democracy politicians who were all involved in, uh, they they, they held primary elections last year um, ahead of uh, parliamentary, what we call legislative council elections that were expected here in Hong Kong last year, but were ultimately cancelled due to the virus or postponed due to the virus. But in in advance of that, they held a primary to decide which of the pan-Democrat candidates would run in in which seats to try and uh, maximise their chances of winning. Um, And the government declared that having that primary election was was subversion under the national security law, because one of the ideas that had been floated was that if the Pan-Democrats managed to win a a majority in that election, then they could use their powers under hong kong's constitution the basic law to try to uh, block various government uh, government bills including the budget to put pressure on the government and force the government to to resign something that's entirely legal under the, under hong kong's constitution but the government decided this was subversion and they arrested uh, basically every candidate that took part in that primary election together with anyone else who was involved in in organising it so that the biggest mass arrest we've seen yet, and and really an attempt to to arrest and and intimidate and ultimately silence uh, the entirety of, of the leadership of the sort of pro democracy politicians in in Hong Kong. Um, uh, so that's been the, the the most obvious thing. But really, the, the the changes have come less in those big obvious police actions and arrests, and just more in the the gradual gradual changes and the way the law is being used to do things like. Um, uh, intimidate and silence the press, uh, intimidate NGOs, and something again very alarming we've seen just in the last couple of weeks is uh, how the government plans to uh, educate Hong Kong's youth on national security, and and the, the government has just rolled out a whole new raft of guidelines for Hong Kong schools on what is and isn't acceptable behaviour within Hong Kong schools, as well as a an education curriculum of how Hong Kong. Hong Kong's youth should be educated as to what national security is all about and many people have said this is a a clear attempt at at brainwashing Hong Kong's youth and some of the things in there are pretty frightening that you know, even uh, any kind of um uh, protest slogans or paraphernalia something as simple as a uh, as a sort of a, a, proge- a protest mascot hanging from a child's school bag would be banned um uh, having any kind of protest actions in a school would be banned even sort of discussing politics or students being involved in any kind of political organization and that's not just sort of pro democracy but even something as simple as people talking about animal rights or climate change or, or any of the various um causes that, that that students commonly get involved in would would be now banned under under the national security law they don't want children school children being involved in any kind of of political activity at all, and really an attempt to wholesale remake the way that Hong Kong's youth think. Um, something that was very alarming for the government, having seen that the youth so engaged and so involved in those protests uh, back in 2019. Um, mm. So, there are some of the ways that, that the law is being used to sort of socially re-engineer Hong Kong, effectively.
0: Mm. It, it's very concerning um, to see that happen and to hear about that. And I'm sure that's the case for so many Hong Kongers um, who are over there right now. And I did—I have been following along with your great newsletters and tweets. So uh, for anyone who's interested in learning more, please uh, sign up to Anthony's newsletter because it's fantastic. Um, but I, I even noted that you, you've you uh, highlighted the fact that even access to certain Western broadcasts like the BBC's World News and Newsweek would no longer be broadcast um, mm. via that, the Hong Kong's seemingly, I think it's the main channel, RTHK. Um, yeah. Is that the case? Like, what are, are these kind of more insidious um, changes being made in terms of access to information?
2: Yeah, RTHK is is the government broadcaster. It's basically the equivalent of of, of Hong Kong's ABC, um, and it's subject to. The same kind of political conflicts that the ABC is sometimes right. con- subject to, um, the government being not happy with the way they're portrayed on what they perceive as their own their own channel or their own broadcaster, and and RTHK has come under you know extra pressure really um, ever since the uh, the national security law has come into come into force. Um, you know, they they have been an, an independent um, and very good um, public broadcaster with a very strong um, news division. um, And that's something that the government's not very happy with when when the news is not in their favor. Um, But the BBC decision was interesting because it really shows the way the distinction between Hong Kong and the rest of mainland China has been dissolving. What happened was that um, the authorities in Beijing were unhappy that the, the U.K., um, stopped uh, stopped uh, China's uh, CGTN being permitted to broadcast in in the UK withdrew their license and they were also mm-hmm. unhappy with a with a BBC report on on Xinjiang that they said was sort of uh, inaccurate and, and distorting the situation in Xinjiang. So the the, the authorities in Beijing said that um, the, the BBC would be banned from broadcasting in the mainland. Um now, which in itself doesn't have a huge impact because in any event it's only available through you know, special cable TV subscriptions in in things like um, hotels and people with the right licenses to, to get that. It's not available to sort of the ordinary population. But then what happened was that in Hong Kong, you know, immediately thereafter, the RTHK was uh, announced that it would cease rebroadcasting the BBC World Service through its transmitters here in Hong Kong. So um, uh, what what alarmed people was, of course, that that access to information issue that you raised, but also that uh, under one country, two systems, Hong Kong should be making its own independent decisions and not being dictated to by Beijing. And, and this was clearly a d- decision that followed directly on the heels of, of the Beijing ban of the BBC and didn't make any sense from a Hong Kong point of view. Um, and this is one of the many examples where the Hong Kong government is now following in, in lockstep with, with with Beijing's orders um, rather than operating on an autonomous basis as they should be. Um, yes. uh, I, I, but, the, yeah, so that's sort of just part of the, the, the concern, again, about, about access to information and and the autonomy of Hong Kong from Beijing.
0: Mm, sounds like the one country uh, – sorry,
2: <laughs> I'm mm. going to
0: rephrase that um, – mm. It sounds like the like the the fact that there are meant to be two systems operating and that there mm. is some distinction or separation uh, between the two is eroding in many facets of life, uh, not just you know through the national security law, although that seems that it's escalated it or provided greater power to do so and to make these changes. But I did also notice that there was um, a proposal a proposed law that uh, the Hong Kong Bar Association is concerned about and no doubt others would be as well, um, where there is a proposition that potentially uh, the head of immigration would be able to stop people from leaving Hong Kong without a court process. And this was particularly highlighted in relation to Hong Kong residents who perhaps have citizenship uh, in other countries, uh, including, for example, maybe the UK or Australia, um, and that there is a concern that they would be able to prevent people from leaving and going to, you know, Canada, Taiwan, UK. Um, is this, a, 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 I guess, a real concern that this something like this could also be implemented and it would be another addition to the situation we're seeing, a kind of crackdown?
2: Mm. Yeah, that has caused a great deal of alarm. And the the government's explanation is that they are just uh, amending the law to help them better fulfill their obligations under various international refugee treaties. And they're saying this power, which is the power for, as you say, the the Director of Immigration, just to make an order refusing anyone permission to board, refusing particular people permission to board an aircraft, um, is intended to stop people coming into Hong Kong, stop stop people who don't have appropriate uh, uh, visas or passports or documentation from coming into Hong Kong. But as people, including the Hong Kong Bar Association, have pointed out, it's drafted so widely that you could also give the Director of Immigration the power to uh, impose exit bans and stop people who would otherwise have a legitimate right to to leave Hong Kong from from getting on planes and and leaving Hong Kong. And that has caused a great deal of alarm in the broader context of everything that's been happening, and in particular, with the spat between the the UK and China over the so-called BNO passports, the British National Overseas Passports. Now, these are passports that were given by Britain to Hong Kong residents at the time of the handover, which which meant that they, they, they weren't full UK citizens, and they didn't have the right to live in the UK or work in the UK, but it was sort of an alternative travel document for them. Well, with everything that happened with the national security law, that the UK then changed their policy and said they're now going to allow people who have BNO passports to come and live and work in the UK with a view to ultimately becoming full UK citizens. And China has been very angry at that. Um, they view that as as Britain breaching promises that are previously made in, in connection with the handover. And so the China has said they're going to refuse to recognize BNO passports any longer. Um, and again, the Hong Kong government followed suit immediately and, and, and made the same announcement. So people are now concerned that with the, the government refusing to recognize BNO passports, meaning that people can no longer travel on them, which which means they'll have to rely on on getting an alternative Hong Kong passport, which is not difficult for for, for many Hong Kongers, but it's still an extra obstacle. And the, the possibility of this, um, the, the possibility of, of these exit bans, that, that there is sort of a sense that people will be prevented from leaving Hong Kong if they want to if they want to uh, uh, flee.
0: Mm, it's a uh, yeah, very disturbing to say the mm. least. Um, Anthony, well, I'll have to leave it there, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, but I do, I would love to pick this up again and to go into even more depth because there is a lot happening over in Hong mm-hmm. Kong, which you, you know, rightfully have been pointing out as so many others have that you are speaking to on a regular basis. Um, so I'm so grateful to you for your firsthand on the ground account today. It's so valuable to hear from you uh, and to get it, you know, unmediated um, and not through all the regular news outlets that don't seem to quite get the urgency of what's going on over there. Um, you're,
2: you're, you're you're, You're welcome and thank you for your interest and concern.
0: Oh, well, it'll be an ongoing interest and concern <laughs> <laughs> and also um, a great, yeah, a valued, um, you are a very much a valued resource and uh, fantastic insight as always. So thanks so much. And I hope people can read your book, City on Fire, and make sure they follow you on Twitter at AntD uh, if they want to also make sure they get real-time uh, information about Hong Kong as well. So thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast.